Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. Live from our WSBT Radio studios in downtown South Bend. Let's go! Come on! Ah! Welcome to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Wow, don't blink. A lot of major intestinal fortitude going on here. On your home for Notre Dame football. Knocked down by Wooden. The game is over. The Irish has upset Florida State. Notre Dame is number one. And Notre Dame basketball. Number one ranked UCLA Bruins have been upset by the Irish of Notre Dame. Plus fighting Irish hockey. They score! Jake Evans scores! Notre Dame, 3.7 seconds away from a spot in the national championship game. The NFL and Major League Baseball. Oh my gracious, how about that? Sports Radio 960 WSBT, WSBTradio.com. The free WSBT radio app. Big time budgets. Now, here's your host, seven-time Associated Press Broadcasting Award winner, Darren Pritchett. It is eight minutes after five o'clock, and welcome to the latest installment of Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Right here on your home of the Fighting Irish, Sports Radio 960, WSBT. For you tech-savvy people, we're streaming live at WSBTradio.com and on our free WSBT radio app. You can also join me live in studio right now by clicking on the Twitch app. Nine minutes after 5 o'clock on this Thursday... June the 15th of 2023. Darren Pritchard with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Sports beat two hours tonight. We're done at 7 o'clock. Then at 7.15, it is South Bend Cubs baseball. Midwest League action tonight from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where South Bend will take on The team they're chasing in the Western Division, Cedar Rapids. The Colonels have won the first two games of the series and now five and a half in front of South Bend for the top spot in the Midwest League's Western Division. Play-by-play coming up at 7.35 tonight here on WSBT Radio. 72 days until the Notre Dame football opener in Dublin, Ireland, as the Irish take on the United States Naval Academy. That's August the 26th, 2.30 kickoff. South Bend time, 7.30 kickoff over in Dublin. The game right here on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. And, of course, that will be sandwiched around pre- and post-game coverage here on WSBT Radio. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we've got our hat trick of opening topics to get to. We have a little look at what the Southeastern Conference is going to look like schedule-wise in 2024. 
the schedule is going to look a whole lot more difficult for some of the top teams as it doesn't look like teams are getting, quote-unquote, some breaks in the scheduling because they're a playoff contender. There are some brutal schedules in the SEC starting next year. Of course, next year marks the beginning of the era of the Texas Longhorns and the Oklahoma Sooners in the SEC. And they just add more depth to what is right now the premier conference in college football as they are winning a majority of the national championships the last 15 years. So we'll go through some of the schedules coming up in just a few moments. Also, we've got our Twitter question of the day surrounding Notre Dame football in the 6 o'clock hour. An hour from right now, we're just going to talk some good old-fashioned football with a friend of the program, Keith Kinder, entering his sixth season as head football coach of the Mishawaka Cavemen. Mishawaka opens up this year against Mishawaka Marion on August the 18th, and the Penn Kingsmen are back on the schedule for the first time since 2000. And 19. So we'll talk some football with Coach Kinder. We'll talk some U.S. Open in the 6 o'clock hour as our national championship is underway at an historic venue that is new to all of us as Los Angeles Country Club in downtown Los Angeles is hosting the 123rd U.S. Open. And it is a very attractive golf course. On television, it is very difficult, although it was brought to its knees. The marine layer was a factor this morning. The fairways and, in particular, the greens were softer than you're used to seeing at a U.S. Open when they like it firm, so balls were sticking, and all of a sudden, you could get a little closer to the pin than probably you're going to be able to the rest of the championship. And two guys took advantage this morning as Xander Shoffley and Ricky Fowler both set U.S. Open records with an eight under par, 62 today. Fowler, the most birdies ever in a U.S. Open round. He had 10 birdies today. Now, those two must have been playing a different golf course because outside of those 62s in the morning wave, the next best score, 67, posted by players like Scotty Scheffler, Bryson DeChambeau, Siwoo Kim, So that's a five-shot difference. Those two played spectacular golf today. It is a very interesting golf course. I have a feeling the membership requests at this golf course are going to probably quadruple over the next year because it is a fun golf course to watch. It's a little intimidating by some of the heavy rough, the Barranca, and it's just a really fascinating golf course. The last three holes are par fours. They average right around 520 yards in length. So just imagine you or I playing golf, and we actually hit it down the fairway pretty good, and maybe we hit it 275 off the tee. You're hitting three wood just to get close to a par four near that green. That is extremely difficult. That's why these – Individuals are the best in the world, and we are Sunday hackers. We would play those front tees because from the tips, I don't know if I would break 120. When I'm playing good, I can shoot 78 to 85, and I don't think I could break 120 on this course. I will say this. The fairways are pretty forgiving for a U.S. Open, and right now with the greens be a little more receptive, I think we'd have a fighting chance, but just getting the ball in the rough, you're chopping it out so many times and you're going to be left with so many of those 
U.S. Open, five six-footers for par, or maybe in our case, bogeys or double bogey. It's a fun, fun golf course, but I didn't see eight under being shot today. But Fowler and Shoffley recorded those 62s in the morning wave, and now the afternoon wave is underway out in Los Angeles. All right, 514 is our time. Let's get to our hat trick of opening topics here on Budweiser's weekday sports beat from Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Let's start with Notre Dame football. Everybody has an opinion about Notre Dame football. So many that write about Notre Dame's independence that are outside of the Notre Dame beat. We've seen it for years, write these long commentaries. They shouldn't do this. Some say it's an advantage. Whatever the case may be, there's always... You can find those outside perspectives saying Notre Dame should go to a conference. Now, maybe some of the arguments you can buy into. Here's a different way of looking at things. I think a really underrated college football analyst, and I hope he continues to get bigger roles on ESPN because I think he is outstanding as a game analyst, and that's former Alabama quarterback, Greg McElroy works for ESPN College Football. And in a podcast, he had this to say about Notre Dame football still being an independent program as of 2023. Quote, I don't feel at this point Notre Dame is in a really big hurry to move. Why would they do it? There's no point. They're leaving what is a really, really good situation for another really, really good situation. You go into the Big Ten, you sign your AAU for sure, you collectively pool all your money and opportunities together. That's great. But you lose the independence and fluidity with which you've operated with for historically as long as I can remember. I don't get the sense that they are positioning themselves right now to align with a league. But I wouldn't be surprised if two or three years from now, that becomes a realistic possibility. We will always keep tabs on Notre Dame and the possibility of them aligning with the conference. But at this point, I have a difficult time thinking that an AD stepping down, a new AD stepping in, or getting your AAU as an indicator of what might happen in the future, end quote. Those are the comments of ESPN college football analyst Greg McElroy on the Always College Football podcast. I don't disagree with a lot that he mentioned there. As we sit here today on June the 15th, 2023, there does not seem to be a pressing reason to leave independence if you're Notre Dame. You're still in outstanding shape. You have your tie-ins to the ACC. That adds five, six games to your schedule every year. Offers some fluidity with the schedule. Kind of offers a foundation piece for the AD to build the schedule around, as well as playing USC, Navy, and Stanford. So that's no problem right now. Now, if there is a time in which Notre Dame really starts thinking about something other than independence, to me it has to be centered around 
a television deal for the home games. If they do not get what they're looking for, whatever that number is, then that might change the dynamic of what Notre Dame wants to accomplish. This is an institution that has such a wonderful tradition of academics. They're not going to alter some of those high standards for, like we talked about yesterday, at least to this point, undergraduate transfers. But money talks. And as we have seen, there is a lot of money right now being infused into the Big Ten and the SEC. The ACC has a nice thing going. But you hear about those six, seven, eight, quote-unquote, rogue schools that are seeing if they can get out of their agreement with the ACC to go to greener pastures, and they're greener because of all the more money you can make in the Big Ten of the SEC. That tells you they're willing to leave something that's pretty good right now to something in their eyes that could be spectacular. USC and UCLA are leaving the West Coast to become a part of a now national conference, the Big Ten, which of course is based in the Midwest. There's going to be a lot of travel for their institutions. But you know, in the long run, it's going to be worth it for them because of the increased amount of revenue that they're making. Now, if Notre Dame can get the home TV contract that they're looking for, then that just keeps pushing the envelope forward of staying independent. When you start looking down a different path is when that money is not what you're looking for and you can do better elsewhere, significantly better. And if you start having issues finding a path into the college football playoff, that shouldn't be the case with those six wild card spots. You're going to have the conference champions. Those are the top four seeds. Notre Dame can only be a five seed as of right now in the new 12-team playoff. There's going to be six spots open. So if you go 10-2, and two, you're going to be right there with an outstanding chance to make the playoff. Now, if the ACC dissolves, that brings up a lot of questions. What the next step might be for the Fighting Irish. What's going to be left of the ACC if those handful of rogue schools get deals elsewhere if that happens so there's still a lot of moving parts there's still a lot of things that would have to transpire before Notre Dame would have to make that jump a jump that they do not want to make and I can't blame them it's worked very very well throughout their history now you can argue they haven't won a title since 88 independence is not costing them national titles There were some coaching hires that slowed down the progress of this institution since 1988. Jack Swarbrick got things turned around with the hiring of Brian Kelly, but from 88 to what, 2010? You had some really good teams in the 90s that could have and maybe should have won national championships, but post Lou Holtz through pre-Brian Kelly, those were wasted years. That had nothing to do with independence. Those were bad coaching hires that could not play high-level football at Notre Dame as an independent. So independence has nothing to do with that. They've had access to the BCS championship game when that was the story in college football. They made the playoff twice. When they're good enough, they make the playoff. 
Independence is not costing them anything in football right now. That's why you stick to the path you're on until you get to that point. Now, I would not be shocked if Notre Dame's group, led by Mr. Swarbrick and Father Jenkins, don't have just some conversations with one example. I'll give an example. I would not be shocked if Mr. Swarbrick, Mr. Bavacqua, Father Jenkins, if they don't have just some preliminary, hey, let's have a conversation with the Big Ten. Because if things fall apart, what is your best landing spot if you would have to leave Independence? Do you really want to see Notre Dame in the SEC? That's not a fit for what Notre Dame is all about. The ACC, would what is left of that conference, be good enough for strength of schedule for Notre Dame? There's a lot of ifs, ands, and buts with the ACC, what may happen to them. But the Big Ten has like academic institutions. They have like football programs. And Notre Dame, a part of their independence, allows them to play coast-to-coast in our great country. The Big Ten now offers you the opportunity to play from coast to coast with many spots in between. That's why if, and that's a big if, you ever get to that point, having to leave independence, the Big Ten makes absolutely no, or makes 100% sense for the Fighting Irish and nothing else to me personally makes sense. If independence is not an issue, It's the Big Ten or nothing for me. The ACC is not going to be good enough for the Notre Dame brand, what's going to be left of it. And Notre Dame is just not an academic fit in the SEC. Big Ten, like institutions, there are a lot that come to mind. And, And who knows, maybe Virginia, North Carolina, really good academic institutions might come along with a Notre Dame if they would have to join the Big Ten, adding more academic prestige to already a conference with some outstanding academic universities. But to get back to the original point, I think Greg McElroy's right on. There is no point right now for Notre Dame to leave independence. He is right on the button. It's good to see someone finally think this through and understand that there is no reason to leave independence right now. If some of the other things transpire, then we have a conversation and that's when we get started. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if Notre Dame's decision makers have just, hey, let's just talk about this, the what-if game. Because you always have to be prepared for the bombshell. You don't want to be left without a plan B. So you got to work on a plan B a little bit. 525 is our time. Darren Pritchett, Sportsbeat here on WSBT Radio. Hat trick of opening topics. We move to a little Notre Dame basketball. 6'7", sophomore forward, Tay Davis, officially introduced as the newest member of the Notre Dame basketball program. Tay Davis played his high school basketball downstate at Warren Central. And he becomes the fourth in-state player to join new head coach Micah Shrewsbury's Irish squad. The other three, Marcus Burton from Mishawaka, Logan Imes from Zionsville, and J.R. Konezny, from South Bend. Davis is from Seton Hall. 
His only season with the Pirates last year, 13.3 minutes per game. Very modest numbers, 2.8 points and 2.8 rebounds. Micah Shrewsbury in a press release said, quote, Tay will be a great fit here at Notre Dame on and off the court. He is a great kid who comes from a basketball family. His versatility and basketball IQ will allow us to use him in a lot of different ways offensively and defensively, end quote. Davis in the same release said, quote, for me it's all about competing. No matter who you are, you're going to get a chance. Whatever they need me to do, they're going to get it. I will work for everything, end quote. Davis joins a couple other players who are coming from other programs that maybe didn't have the greatest opportunity to play a lot or shine at their prior institution that they will have the opportunity to play more here at Notre Dame. Julian Roper, the guard from Northwestern, and the big guy from Penn State who actually started a lot. Minutes, maybe not what you would expect from a normal starter, but Keba Jai from Penn State, another that falls into that category. Now our final hat trick of opening topic for tonight. Number three is this. The U.S. Open at Los Angeles Country Club in L.A. is underway. But before the tournament got started, no surprise the golf media had to ask the world's best players about what happened last week with the PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, and the Public Investment Fund coming together, forming a new corporation, and that Saudi money becoming, well, working their way to the tables where all the things are decided in the game of golf. Brooks Kepka left the PGA Tour for Live Golf. Since becoming a member of Live Golf, well, had a great run at the Masters back in April, nearly won it, was in the final group, came up short, but then got it done at last month's PGA Championship, winning his third PGA Championship and his fifth major overall. Kepka was asked this week, as a live golfer, his thoughts on the coming together of those three entities. Uh, I don't think there's really been too much animosity between players in general. I think that's that's been a lot more constructed from the media side than the player side. But uh, I haven't paid too much attention to it, honestly. I've been trying to prep for this week. Um, I'm just trying to make sure that I come into a major championship. There's four weeks a year that I really, really care about, and this is one of them, and um, you know, want to play well. So I wasn't going to waste any time on, on any news that happened last week. I saw it. I was at, sitting at Grove um, at the bar there uh, having breakfast, and I saw it on TV, watched uh, a little bit of the interview, and then that was it. Just went out and practiced. One thing about Kepka, he's been in the background as this story has developed over the last two years. In comparison, Rory McIlroy really the face of the PGA Tour during this civil war against Live Golf. He would stand in front of the cameras and the microphones, answer all the questions. He was pro-PGA Tour, anti-Live Golf. That takes a lot of energy to be the face of the organization. Brooks Kepka didn't want anything to do with that. Why? Because he's all about Brooks Kepka, and that's not a negative. He focuses on himself and he lets everything else around him fall into place. So Kepka, Kepka, you can tell, wasn't phased by what happened last week because he knows 
that there could be a fine or there could be a process to get back on the PGA Tour. But he's going to be back very, very soon. In fact, he made a joke leaving the media tent earlier this week after this press conference that we'll see you next week of the Travelers. I don't know if he knows something we don't, but that would be a big surprise. Speaking of surprises, everyone on the PGA Tour was caught off guard by the announcement. The players had no idea this merger was coming. What about Kepka from the Live Golf perspective? Uh, yeah, I think there was. It was just kind of, uh, we didn't hear anything about it. That's kind of, I think, the one thing that shocked everybody the most. Um, I think I ran into Ricky and JT about after watching the whole thing, and they were asked if they knew, and they said they didn't know either. So. They were kind of learning about it. They were on the back of the range. Um, so I probably saw them 30 minutes after, I guess, the news broke. That's Brooks Kepke, who's just getting started his round today at the U.S. Open. Two-time U.S. Open champion. John Rahm won the Masters earlier this year. He's won a U.S. Open. Looking for a second this week. Played a pretty solid round earlier today. Rahm this week was asked... How he took the news, in particular, not knowing the deal was coming. Well, there's a lot of not answered questions. Uh, and it's tough when it's, it's tough, you know, as a week before a major. I mean, I'm trying not to think about it as much as possible. Uh, I think it gets to a point where you want to have faith in management. And I want to have faith that. This is the best thing for all of us, but uh, it's clear that that's not the, the consensus, right? I think the, the general feeling is that a lot of people feel a bit of betrayal from, from management. Uh, I understand why they had to keep it so secret. I understand we couldn't make it through a pack meeting with more than 10 minutes after people spilling the beans right away and some article about you guys already being out there. So I get it. I get the secrecy. Uh, it's just... It's not easy as a player that's been involved, like many others, to wake up one day and see this bombshell, right? So that's where we're all in a bit of a state of limbo because we don't know what's going on, and I don't think how much is finalized and how much they can talk about either, right? So it's, uh, it's a state of uncertainty that we don't love, but at the end of the day, I'm not a business expert. Uh, some of those guys on the board and involved in this are. So I like to think they're going to make a better decision than I would, but I don't know. We don't, we'll see. Uh, there's still too many questions to be, to be answered. I get the point they had to keep it under wraps from one standpoint. The other side of the coin tells you the PGA Tour, during the Civil War with Liv the last two years, always talked about that this is your tour to the players. This is your tour, not our tour. Well, they had no idea this deal was coming. Hence, some people like Rom feel like there's a little betrayal. I don't think Rom is as angry about it as some other players. There's a lot of angst on the PGA Tour right now. By the way, Rom today carded a one under par 69. He is seven behind the leaders, Xander Shoffley and Ricky Fowler, who posted those U.S. Open record eight under par 62s earlier today. And this whole PGA Tour Live Golf thing, it comes down to this for me. I did not like Live Golf. I think there were ways for the PGA Tour to be forced to change without going to this drastic measure. I was disappointed. 
Brooks Kapka, Dustin Johnson, Bubba Watson, Phil Mickelson, on down the line, went the live golf route. The Saudi money is filthy and dirty. There's no question their horrible treatment of women, the accusations of other disgusting acts are a major factor. But I come to terms with this from this standpoint. I love PGA Tour golf. 9.30 this morning, I had Peacock going and watching the first seconds of the first players who I'd never heard of tee off in the U.S. Open. Then I went to USA Network, which the golf is still on right now, and I'd assume it's going to maybe NBC eventually. I've not looked, actually. So I love it. I love the early rounds of the non-major tournaments because it's almost like NASCAR. You get to know the driver, or in this case, the player, and you root for them. You kind of know their backstories. So I really enjoy it. I said this a couple of weeks ago on the golf show. I want everybody to come back together. I didn't know how it was going to happen a couple of weeks ago. I just want Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson to be in the same field all year long as Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler, the best taking on the best. Well, the Saudi money is now heavily involved in the PGA Tour, but you do a little more research, many sponsors of PGA Tour events have ties to the Saudis. So their hands are already all over the game of golf. So as a golf fan, I'm just going to not think about where some of that money is coming from. From what I understand, after doing a little research, I think the PGA Tour was in a lot of trouble in the next few years with the litigation against Live Golf. It was going to really, really drain their reserves. So something had to be done. I'm just going to enjoy the game of golf. I'm not going to think about where the money's from and enjoy these great players playing in front of us every week. That's what we want, the best players. That's why we buy tickets. That's why we watch TV is to see the best players compete against the best and maybe not the best way possible, but we are going to get that moving forward. That's our hat trick of opening topics for tonight. ESPN College football analyst Greg McElroy says, love it, stay independent, Notre Dame. You have no reason to change right now. Notre Dame introduces 6'7 sophomore Tay Davis, the transfer from Seton Hall, and some U.S. Open Live Golf PGA Tour conversation. All right, it is 537 at Sports Radio 960 WSBT. When we come back, it just means more in the SEC. That's what they tell us. Well, the competition in the SEC is going to be as strong as ever. Yeah, they're still going to play. Florida A&M and Mercer, but the conference schedules that are out for 2024, it's a good thing there's a 12-team playoff or they wouldn't be doing this because there are some murderer row schedules. We'll go through some of the big schedules coming up next as we don't give up on the 23 season. Still a lot of fun to be had, but 24 with 12 teams in the playoff is very intriguing, and the SEC wants to get maybe four teams into the playoff. Is it possible? We'll talk about the schedule in 24 next as Sportsbeat continues on your home of the Fighting Irish, Sports Radio 960 WSBT.
5.43 at Sports Radio 960 WSBT, streaming live at WSBTradio.com and on our free WSBT radio app. Darren Pritchett with you on this Thursday evening. It's going to be a little different in college football in 2024 when the 24 regular season concludes when we get through the conference championship games. The College Football Selection Committee will go through their process of ranking the teams, but instead of four teams that go into the playoff next year, the committee will be sending 12 teams to the college football playoff. And that is going to affect the way teams schedule in college football. There's always a big spotlight on the Southeastern Conference, as we talked about in the previous segment with the dominance of the SEC in terms of winning national championships the last 15 years. The formula they have used to get teams in position to go to the playoff has worked extremely well. And, of course, some really good football players and decisions made by coaches go into that. But in 2024, the SEC divisions go away. Texas and Oklahoma join the Southeastern Conference. You've got 16 teams going to the post in the Southeastern Conference. Now, with a 12-team playoff, the SEC is going to stick with their eight-game conference slate. No television network stepped up with money for that ninth game, so they're going to hold off for now. But there is a high expectation that very soon they will go to nine conference games. But with a 12-team playoff, the SEC believes they can get three or four teams into the playoffs starting next year. Because you can have two lost teams be in the equation for those wild card spots. There might even be an outside chance for a nine and three team. I want to see it play out. I'm not totally certain, but 10 and two, you're in the conversation as a power five conference team. You're not guaranteed to get in. You got to have. The resume to get it done, yeah, and the committee has to believe in you over other teams, but 10-2 and puts you right there in position to go to the playoffs. So now, if you're scheduling games, you have to balance this. You have to realize that you lose one game out of the SEC, you're still probably going to get in the playoff. Two, you're probably still going to be in good position because of the strength of schedule in the conference with already the great programs like Alabama, LSU, Tennessee, Florida, and in Texas and Oklahoma, there's going to be very attractive boost to strengths of strength of schedules amongst SEC teams. So you can lose a couple of games and still be in the running. Plus, you're trying to fulfill these massive media contracts where networks are just throwing boatloads of money, maybe warships of money, at these conferences. So you have to balance making sure your teams get in the playoff with providing matchups that get these TV networks excited about bringing those warships of money into your port. There is a balance. So let's take a look at what the SEC has in store for us in 2024. I picked several teams, some of the big-name programs, just to see what they're going to be dealing with. And we'll just go in alphabetical order. You have to start with the Alabama Crimson Tide, the dominant program the last 20 years in college football, trying to get back on top, but they have to get through Georgia 
and LSU right now to get back to the promised land. You look at Alabama's 24 schedule. These are just the conference games. They've got Auburn and Georgia at home, then at LSU. That can be a pretty interesting start to the year. We'll see how good Auburn is next year, but Georgia at LSU, then Missouri at Oklahoma, South Carolina at Tennessee at Vanderbilt. So if you're Alabama, and I know it's hard to project what's going to happen in 2024, but based on the last few years, you could argue that Alabama and the SEC will face ranked teams, Georgia, LSU, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. So four of your games are going to be a handful. And also in 24, Alabama has a non-conference road game at Wisconsin. So they'll go to LSU, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. There are not too many cupcakes in that particular road schedule. Then you go to the Florida Gators, who have been down the last couple of years, even with Anthony Richardson at quarterback last season. Not a great football team trying to be rebuilt. You look at Florida's 24 schedule. You've got Georgia in the outdoor cocktail game in Jacksonville. You've got Kentucky and LSU at home, at Mississippi State, home against Ole Miss, and then at Tennessee, at Texas, and Texas A&M. So what pops out there? Georgia, LSU, at Tennessee, at Texas, Texas A&M. Those are five whoppers, and I'm not even throwing in there Mississippi State and Ole Miss, who could be just as good, if not better, than the Florida Gators. Now you got the two-time defending national champion Georgia Bulldogs. Apparently there was some whispers around the SEC that Georgia had it too easy last year in conference play. I wonder if those whispers came from Tuscaloosa. But anyway, next year could be a different story. In 2024, this is Georgia's SEC schedule. At Alabama, hello, home against Auburn. You got Florida in the cocktail party. At Kentucky, Mississippi State, at Ole Miss, Tennessee, and at Texas. So, Georgia in 24, they've got a road slate that includes Alabama, Texas, and Ole Miss that you probably feel like are going to be challenging games for the Georgia Bulldogs. We're looking at the 2024 SEC football schedule that came out yesterday. Brian Kelly's LSU Tigers, they line up this way. It is Alabama, Oklahoma, Ole Miss, and Vanderbilt at home. So they get the Crimson Tide in Baton Rouge. They have to go to Arkansas, Florida, South Carolina, Texas A&M. I think that is a little bit more favorable than some of the other teams I mentioned because your two most difficult games are Alabama and Oklahoma, and those are going to be at Tiger Stadium. You don't have to play Georgia. You don't have to play Texas. So that is a pretty favorable schedule, all things considered, for Coach Kelly and LSU. Then you've got Oklahoma. The Sooners joining the SEC. They've got at home Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee, The Red River rivalry game is considered a home game for Oklahoma in 24. That game, of course, we played neutral site in Dallas. And the four road games for Oklahoma in their first year in the SEC, Auburn, Elbury, Ole Miss. So you've got Alabama at home at LSU and the red rivalry game against Texas. That's 
barely doable. But their defense is going to have to get a whole lot better coming over to the SEC. Two more teams I want to look at as we look at the 24 SEC schedule. The Tennessee Volunteers on an uptick right now. The Volunteers in 2024, their home games, Alabama. Can the excitement level match what we had last year in that game between the Tide and the Volunteers? Along with Alabama at home, they get Florida, Kentucky, and Mississippi State. But a pretty challenging road slate for Tennessee. They got to go to Fayetteville to take on Arkansas. They go between the hedges to take on Georgia. They have to go to Boomer Soonerland to take on Oklahoma. And then Clark Lee and Vanderbilt, that game in Nashville. So those games are pretty difficult on the road for Tennessee. And the final 2024 SEC schedule I want to mention, one of the newcomers, the Texas Longhorns with Arch Manning. I'm sure he'll be firing touchdown passes by the time we get to 2024, if not well before. But Texas at home in their first year in the SEC, they get Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, and Mississippi State on the road. Arkansas, Texas A&M, Vanderbilt, and the neutral side game against Oklahoma, which counts as a road game, at least in the SEC schedule. So Texas debuts with a home game against Georgia. Can you imagine the ticket prices for that game? On the internet, oh my goodness, that is going to be a hyped-up ball game down there in Austin. Other than that, very doable at home. Again, Arkansas is tricky. Oklahoma, you never know what happens in that game in Texas A&M. Who knows what's going to happen down there with Jimbo and the Aggies. So there you go. To me, LSU and Oklahoma came out looking pretty good. Alabama's got a a fairly difficult schedule. Georgia has a more difficult schedule than we've seen the last couple of years. And all of this has to do with the 12-team playoff, strength of schedule, getting more teams into the playoff. And again, you have to balance getting the matchups that TV wants that will get you to turn on their channel for these big contests. They have to fulfill these massive media contracts. And to do that, you got to have grade A playing grade A, and we are seeing that throughout the schedule of Alabama playing Georgia and LSU and Tennessee. Oklahoma's in there, and you've got Georgia playing some more difficult games coming up in 2024 at Alabama, at Ole Miss, at Texas. You get Tennessee at home. So I think it's going to be fun to watch how the schedules are going to look different in years to come with the 12-team playoff and these massive TV media deals. 5.54 is our time. We'll get to our Twitter question of the day coming up next on WSBT. This is the Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat Twitter question of the day from Sports Radio 960 WSBT. A couple of minutes in front of 6 o'clock, Sports Radio 960 WSBT. I'm Darren Pritchett. Had a little technical issue with our Twitter question of the day for Wednesday. So due to the issue, I'm going to make it tomorrow's question. So we'll pass that along coming up in a moment. But for now, this is the question we posted earlier today on my Twitter account at 960 Sportsbeat. And this was based upon the conversation I had to start the program. ESPN college football analyst. 
Greg McElroy believes there is no reason for Notre Dame football to leave Independence with the way things stand right now. So based on his comments, I'm asking you this question today. Ten years from now, 2033, Notre Dame football will be fill in the blank, still independent, member of the Big Ten, member of the SEC, or member of the ACC. Ten years from now, heck, things change every 48 hours, it seems like, from time to time in college athletics. So trying to guess 10 years from now is challenging, but let's just have some fun with the topic. Vote right now on my Twitter account at 960 Sportsbeat. Ten years from now, Notre Dame football will be independent, member of the Big Ten, member of the SEC, member of the ACC. We'll have the results on tomorrow's program here on WSBT Radio. And then with the question that had the issue on Wednesday, we'll bring it back Friday, and that was the one in regard to the stat lines of former Notre Dame players, which matches what you think Tobias Merriweather will do this year. We had stats from Tim Brown, Bobby Brown, Chase Claypool, Brayden Lindsey, so we'll do that on Friday. We're already at the top of the hour. Time has flown by here on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Do want to mention, on tomorrow's program, Notre Dame lacrosse coach, the national championship coach, Kevin Corrigan's back in town. He's going to join me tomorrow at 5.30 to relive that national championship win. 6.01 at WSBT. You can listen to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat live or on demand with our free WSBT radio app. Just search WSBT radio in the App Store and Google Play. Now, back to local sports talk on Sports Beat with your host, Darren Pritchett. It is seven minutes after six o'clock. Sports Beat continues here on WSBT radio, streaming live at WSBTradio.com and on that WSBT radio app. It's time to talk a little pigskin. Keith Kinder entering his sixth season as the head football coach at Mishawaka High School. He sports a record of 45 and 15, and the Cavemen have been sectional champions in four of the last five years. Well, Coach, it's good to be with you in the middle of June as we're about a month and a half away from the start of practice. How are things in the summertime for you? You know, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, it's it's always nice to to get on the radio and, and talk about our program with you and it it, it gives you the butterflies because you know that football season's around the corner. Um, we we kind of treat June uh, a little differently than a lot of programs in our area where we don't touch a football, we don't put on a helmet uh, during this month, and we've just been in the weight room and and on the track and uh, on our practice field trying to get in shape and and trying to build some some team unity, and some mental toughness. Coach, I remember the last time I had you on, we had a discussion that you and your coaching staff recently had the chance to go to Annapolis and learn from the Navy coaching staff. Did I read correctly? Did you guys spend some time with Army this offseason? We did. So we, we, had, a, we had a spring trip where uh, we, we were able to go visit uh, West Point, uh, watch, watch two of their practices, uh, drove a little bit north of of West Point and and went and watched Marist College in Poughkeepsie, 
Um, and, and then we got to, we were fortunate enough to be allowed uh, by the Notre Dame staff to spend some time at, at, at a couple of their spring practices as well. So just the, the opportunity to, to be around um, some great programs uh, and learn from the best is, was, was something that was really important to us. And, and we want to get better. Uh, one of our big goals in the off season was we want to practice more efficiently. So uh, the, the real thing that we, that we were focused on in, in all three of our little visits was, you know, to try to get some pointers on the way that uh, these programs transition, the way that they, they use practice plans and their different personnel groupings and, and things like that. So we, we feel like we got a lot out of that, but, you know, just in terms of from a, if you're a fan of the United States of America and, and the history behind our country and you haven't been to West Point yet, like I, I really strongly encourage you to, mm. to take the trip there and, and just spend some time walking uh, the campus and, and the town's really neat and, and a lot of great history there. Coach, just for Irish fans listening to this interview, having watched a couple of Marcus Freeman practices, what stands out to you about the way he does things at Notre Dame? Because I think from the outside looking in, we feel like he is a stern voice, but also someone that has a great understanding and a great relationship of the players on his team. Yeah, so I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to see um, two practices now, and, and the thing that has really stood out to me the most uh, was, number one, like you said, the relationships that he has um, during pre-practice, they're, they're stretching both practices I've been at, and I'm assuming it's, it is customary at all of their practices. He shakes hands and hugs and talks to every player in the program during the stretch. So there's a 10-minute period. Every player in the program has their one-on-one time with him, and I think that's really valuable uh, in, in his position. Uh, that stood out. And then just the efficiency with which they, they move. Um, there is no waste of time during their practice. I, I think they're incredibly efficient. Um, it, it, it is certain that a lot of thought uh, goes into the, the different segments of their practice and, and how they move, but it, they've got it, – it's a, it's a staff full of coaches who have good relationships with players. Like, that's the thing that stood out the most is just the, the staff seems to really enjoy being around their players. I assume Coach Kinder was tough to keep your eyes off that Justin Fisher kid playing for Notre Dame, your former player? You know, it it was, um, and it was. Here's here's what was really neat, and and I told him this after the practice. Is, is number one, I, I wasn't sure what to expect, but when I watched him, he did not look like he didn't belong. Like mm. he he fits there. Like he looks like he belongs. He was getting some some reps with uh, the twos and the threes during spring ball, and um, the other thing that stood out to me was. Uh, Coach Parker, the offensive coordinator, was coaching him, and I told him this afterwards. Like you should, you should start to concern yourself if you aren't getting talked to. Yeah. But they're coaching him, and if they're coaching him, they're taking him seriously. And so, uh, it would not surprise me uh, in in any way to see him on the field eventually. Uh, not necessarily this year. But I, I think he thinks he's got a chance to to, to potentially compete for a spot on a special team or two, but. 
uh, I believe that before his time at Notre Dame is done, he's going to make an impact on the program. Mm, wonderful to hear. Mishawaka head football coach Keith Kinder, my guest here on WSBT Radio. I know you could spend five hours on the, this next topic, so I'm just going to ask something really generically speaking. As someone that plays option football, you've studied Navy, you've studied Army. As you watch those two football programs, and I know the coaching staff's going to be a little different at Navy now, is there much difference in the way those two teams play option football? Well, you know, it, it is interesting. I think that they kind of, on a consistent basis, kind of ebb and flow with each other. You know, what whatever one figures out, the other's pretty <laughs> quick to borrow from. Um, I think if you watch the Army-Navy game, uh, last December, you saw that neither team really was under center much. They were all, for the majority of the time, they were in the shotgun and they were running a lot of traditional or, or, or traditional now, I guess you mm-hmm. would say, zone read type uh, schemes and stuff like that. And when we went to West Point and watched them practice uh, this spring, we didn't see one play where they were under center. So I think both are starting to move away from the the old school military under center true triple option uh and and kind of going to the more uh the more common offensive schemes that you see now with their basic principles still intact but um the thing that always stands out um either place that we've that we've visited and and talking with their coaches is just the discipline uh, that they expect their players to play with, and then just the, you know, I'm always fascinated and in awe of the the commitment that these young men um, make because not only are they college football players at a Division One level, but they have they have things expected of them that aren't quite expected of any other college football player in the country. You know, it, it's a very high academic school. Um, but they've, you know, they're up at 6 a.m. doing their their stuff with their units before classes, before they even think about football. Well said. Coach, how much of an advantage is it for you and your offensive coaching staff to bring back a guy that's going to be his third year as a starting quarterback in Brady Fisher? And might I add, pretty cool, he was a two-time sectional winner last year in football and basketball. Yeah, what a you know before before I answer that, just what a great year in general for that it was for for Mishawaka sports yes. between you know our wrestling team winning the conference, uh, our basketball team uh, winning the sectional, and also being in the thick of it uh, for the for the conference championship for uh, the major, majority of the season. Our baseball team um, almost running the table uh, in the NLC uh, and winning the sec, winning the conference, and you know. Uh, just running into a good pitcher in the sectional championship, but our, our boys' sports had a had a tremendous uh, had a tremendous year. Uh, we won the conference in softball uh, for the first time. So you know things are. We had a really good year athletically, but but like you said, you know Brady um, having him back for a third year um, and and just knowing the uh, the pressure situations that he's been in, uh, not just on the football field but on the basketball court. Um, and the leadership that, that he's displayed in both of those you cannot cannot get under his skin. Like it, I, I really <laughs> believe he's unflappable. Like whether it's basketball or football, he's he's just himself. He's he's a he's a cool customer that 
that can be counted on to, to make plays. And I, I think, you know, even though he's not always comfortable with being a vocal leader, uh, he, you're not going to see him get worked up. And, and so I think that he has a calming influence, whether it's on the field or on the court. Coach, if I remember correctly, you had a pretty veteran offensive line last year. Is there going to have to be some retooling of that line for 2023? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've got we've got one returning starter in, in Matt Willis who, who started as a sophomore um, and started most of the year last year as a junior, but it ended up missing the last couple games with, with a bad ankle injury. Um, so leader in the first couple of weeks of June. Um, and we've got about, you know, six or seven potentials. You know, we, we've got a, we've got a list of guys. We know we've got four spots to fill. And we think we've got six or seven guys that that can play. Uh, the, the the real challenge for us, and it's going to be a challenge to not only identify the right people, but to make it happen as quick as possible. Because there's a lot of stuff to learn at the offensive line in, in our offense. So um, the real challenge will be try to try to develop these guys physically and, and and teach them the skills they need, but then get them in the right position so they can actually learn the offense. Coach Kinder, I know on the defensive side of the football, you have a young man that is getting some Division One looks. Carmine Orozco, 6'4", 272, a defensive lineman. I looked him up on the On3 website, and they listed programs that have offered him already, Western Michigan, Ball State, Toledo, Miami of Ohio, and also Indiana University. Can you describe Carmine on the football field and what makes him – such a great player for you, and it gives him the opportunity to possibly have success in the future. Well, I think, like, just uh, if, if we're talking just physical act- attributes first, the, the fact that you listed his size and he has as good a feet uh, yeah. as anyone we've, we've coached. Um, his feet are really, really good for a, a guy his size. Um, he played basketball. Uh, that that has helped him tremendously. He had a really good JV season this year. Uh, you know, I think that they expect him to, to give some quality minutes in, in the winter uh, coming up. But so really good feet for his size. That's the thing that stands out when whenever a coach comes uh, and and talks about him or calls and asks about him, they they always comment about his feet. You know, and at a in his sophomore year when when he's getting these kinds of attention you know it number one it, it doesn't happen very often at our place so the concern for me was okay this can go one of two ways it's either going to light a fire under him or he's going to start to get a big head and, and start to think that he's made it and he can coast um it has it has lit a fire um hmm. and and we have seen a different side of him uh in the last couple months, particularly in the last three or four weeks, he is he is becoming a leader. He is working hard, um, you know, and he's he's got these camps that he's going to and all those things. But I I, I still think that the focus for him is going to be what he can do to help make Mishawaka football uh, have a successful 2023. Coach Kinder, I know every football program has an idea what they want to do schedule wise with their non-conference games, and sometimes programs go a different direction. And it's great to see, this is Darren speaking, it is great to see that Penn and Mishawaka are once again going to play in football. It'll be the first time since 2019. 
and it's great for the communities. I think it is great for the high schools. It's great for the kids. It's great for everybody. You don't want rivalry games to go away. So from your perspective, Coach, how excited are you to have, first off, such a really good non-conference opponent back on your schedule, let alone a game that a lot of people care about deeply? Yeah, I, I think that it's it's really nice because I, our our first two games of the year, our two non-conference games, I think can be etched in stone for the next 20 years, hopefully. Awesome. Marion, a couple miles away, Penn, a couple miles away. So from that aspect, you talk about, you know, the first couple games of the season, you know, everyone's excited about football. You don't want to drive 90 minutes and go play at Portage. Uh, you want to be in, in town playing – playing a quality opponent and we've got that in our first two games um I, I think the biggest thing for for us uh in in the addition of Penn to our schedule is that it's going to help it's going to help prepare us for the conference and it's going to help prepare us for the tournament we're, we're number one they're going to be really good this fall but they're always going to be well coached they're going to be disciplined and they're going to expose you they're going to show you what you're not very good at they're going to identify it you know, throughout their week in preparation, and then they're going to show it to you on Friday night, and it's going to allow you a chance to, to get better. So it's going to be a great challenge for us. We've got a lot of work to do, um, but we've got a lot of respect for them, um, and, and we're hoping that that it can be something where it can be that rivalry. You know, the, we've always kind of talked about it. It, it. it can't be a rivalry if, if you're on the short end of the stick all the time. So, you know, we – we we split with them in 18 and 19. Uh, I thought we had a chance to win the game in 19 and kind of gave it away. Um, so we're really looking forward to the to the opportunity. Hmm. I'm just curious as we start to wind down here with Keith Kendra, the Mishawaka football coach. College football, the NFL, they are doing whatever they can to limit kickoffs anymore in their respective leagues or divisions i'm just wondering is anything coming down the line in high school i know you're always concerned about injuries on special teams but is it still kind of status quo in high school football or are there not as many kickers that kick the ball deep leading to maybe some of those collisions that you see at the higher levels or the speed of the game is different too yeah you know i think that there's more of a reason for looking at kickoffs in at the high school level because if you watch at the at the high collegiate level or the NFL the, the majority of kicks are touchbacks um, and and so that's kind of negated that play altogether at the high school level that's not the case we had a we had a very serious shoulder injury um, uh, on the opening kickoff in in 2021 in the sectional championship game uh, against Concord and ended the kids season and and effectively he, he lost his potential to play baseball in the spring. Uh, the, the kickoff is is the thing that I would like to see addressed. Number one, um, we have struggled uh, to cover kicks, uh, so that would that would be uh, a little bit more sleep for me each night. Uh, but also just because of the violence of the play, it, it's it's incredibly violent. Um, bodies are flying from out of your line of sight, and it doesn't happen on any other play. Uh, than on the kickoff, really. And, and so I don't know. I, I've not heard anything about that being addressed, but, but that would be the one change that I would suggest if we were going to try to change our game. Coach, do you want to mention just in a quick second here, do you guys have a fundraiser going on right now involving Mishawaka football? Yeah, you know, we're, uh, we're selling uh, digital discount cards. Um, 
through through an app. It, it's a really neat feature. So it, it's kind of like a, a hybrid between, a, a you know, the physical discount card that you used to get and like a crowdfunding type um, app. You know, if, if, if you don't want the card, then you can, you know, you can still donate to the program. We've got We've got a lot of players in our program, and, and every dollar spent is going towards them. We, we annually take our entire program, coaches included, to Taylor University for, for a three-day trip, uh, do some team bonding, but also lots of football, a lot of fellowship, and, and, and they get an idea of what college life could look like. Um, and then it's going to support them and, and pay for their high school spirit pack uh, uh, that, that they get, you know, the, the clothes that we wear on, on road games and things like that. And then it's going to cover their participation fee through the athletic department. So uh, it, it's really not a fundraiser so that the coaches can go purchase the, the biggest and, and best new piece of equipment. It's really um, a, a, an avenue for, for our kids to, to raise the money. So it's, it's not costing our, our families a lot of money to play football. And where can people go to get a hold of this digital card? Well, if they want to add me as a friend on Facebook, it's on there. But I, okay. I think it's all over the place on, on Facebook right now. And, and, and I'll tweet it out uh, this evening okay. uh, as well. Very good. Coach, always good to be with you. Thank you so much for your time. Can't wait to see the high school football season get uh, get underway once again. First practice on July 31st. It'll be here before you know it. And look forward to talking to you again as the football season gets going. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Coach. Keith Kender entering his sixth season as Mishawaka head football coach. It's 627 at Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Welcome to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. I'm catching on the hosel, right? Yeah, right, right. Moving my head. Yeah. Clearing too early. I'm clearing too late. My swing feels like an unfolding lawn chair. The crowd is just on its feet here. He's a Cinderella boy. Uh, tears in his eyes, I guess. Four. Please, Darren Pritchett is now broadcasting. Oh, wow! In your life have you seen anything like that? On Sports Radio 960 WSBT. I'm Darren Pritchett. Sportsbeat continues at 632. My thanks to Mishawaka football coach Keith Kinder joining the program. Good info there. Getting the chance to go to Notre Dame football practice, spending time at West Point with Army. That's got to be such a great opportunity as a high school football coach to watch the next level and see how they do things. And it sounds like the efficiency of Notre Dame football practice is something that Coach Kinder picked up on, and maybe the Cayman players might notice something a little different when practice starts in about, goodness, 16 days, believe it or not. All right, Sportsbeat continues here on WSBT Radio. The U.S. Open is underway out at Los Angeles Country Club in Los Angeles, California. This golf course, 100 years old, but it has never hosted a major tournament like the U.S. Open. This is the 123rd United States Open Championship, only the second time the city of Los Angeles has hosted our national championship. Coming into today's first round, I'm thinking if you shoot four under par, you post a 66, you're probably going to be atop of the leaderboard because this course is 7,400 yards compared to 
I would say the norm in the U.S. Open, I don't have the stats, but I'm just going by what I see, the feel of the tournament, that the fairways are a bit more forgiving, a little wider than normal. And today, the golf course has probably been softer than the USGA once, as the greens have been pretty receptive. Now, they roll out. They are still very fast, but... It's just been, I think, a day in which the ball is held on the greens a whole lot more than I anticipated. Now there's Barranca, these, it almost looks like valleys, or not necessarily a cliff, it's not that deep, but there's just some spots where you can have a really difficult situation, and Ricky Fowler today was at the bottom of an area like that and had to hit the ball between maybe a, a 10, 15-foot window between the base of a tree and a bridge rail. And he got the job done. I think he might have ended up making birdie on that par 5. So there are some obstacles. The rough is extremely long in some areas. If you get the right lie, you can hit it toward the green. But then you also have those classic U.S. Open moments where you have to chop it down the fairway and not go at the green. So with all that being said... It's a pretty stern challenge. 466, my guess, well, if that was reality, if that was my score today, I'd be happy, but I am still four shots out of the lead. We saw something today that we have never witnessed in the 123-year history of the U.S. Open Golf Championship. We saw 62s recorded and the 62s were done by two different players. In fact, a 62 has only been shot once in majors since 1980. It happened twice today at L.A. Country Club. Americans Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley posted those eight under par scores. Fowler set a U.S. Open record. He had 10 birdies during his round. I remember... As a kid watching the U.S. Open, and there was a big moment that happened, and I wish I remember the year. It was in the early 80s, I'm imagining. There was a golfer by the name of Dr. Gil Morgan, and he became the first player in U.S. Open history to get to double digits under par at any point in the golf tournament. That was a big deal. I mean, that was after, what, 75 years of U.S. Open golf. No one had ever made double digits because the U.S. Open normally is the most difficult and sternest test in the game of golf. Ten under. One tournament. Big deal. Fast forward to 2023. We saw two individuals almost get to double digits in one round with Fowler and Shoffley shooting those eight under par 62s. Shoffley had eight birdies and 10 pars. A spectacular card. Fowler had 10 birdies, six pars, and two bogeys on the par 3 11th and the par 4 17th. He shot 30 on the front, came in at 32 for a 62. I didn't see that score out there. And based on everybody else in the field, now everybody's out on the course right now. The afternoon wave is underway. We are seeing no one get close to that number. Right now, I believe there's an eight-way tie for third place, and it's minus three. Five shots off the pace. Rory McIlroy 
threw five holes in his first round. He is three under par for the first time in his major championship history. This is his 58th major. He birdied the first two holes. And he's got a chance for birdie on the sixth hole right now to take solo third. And he missed that putt. So McElroy on the course at minus three. In the clubhouse at minus three, you got Scotty Scheffler, Bryson DeChambeau, Siwoo Kim, and also a gentleman from France, Paul Barjan. All at minus three. You've got a couple other players on the course at minus three. Sam Burns. And Nick Hardy, a great collegiate player at the University of Illinois, that great program that they have going in there under Coach Small. But the U.S. Open right now, a lot of red numbers, and I'm a little surprised. Now, Brooks Kepka, who won the PGA Championship, he is at two over par right now in the day, and I believe he just made another bogey on the front side. So Kepka is now three over par. He's a two-time winner of our national championship. And the guy who won the Masters, John Rahm, a 100 par, 69 earlier today. So it is already at a historic U.S. Open with those 62s on the board. The course is only going to get more difficult. I think the marine layer hovering over the golf course probably helped the morning wave play in the softer conditions. I just can't imagine we're going to see 17, 18 under par win this championship. It's hard for me to imagine. I still think 10 is a really, really, really good score, even with two players at eight under par so far. We'll recap all things U.S. Open on the golf show Saturday morning at 8 a.m. here on WSBT Radio. Your time is 6.39 at WSBT. Show me the money. We go with We go with We press on Budweiser's weekday sports beat on this Thursday, 644 is your time. Great to be with you. Darren Pritchett with you. And now here we go with our sports wagering segment. We going to Sizzler. And we had a pretty good night. Last night, it was a three-and-one night on the program. Let's go through the four suggestions. And the first of four did not work out. The Yankees on the money line at the Mets at minus 110. Great pitching matchup, Garrett Cole against Justin Berlander. I kind of felt like the starters might cancel themselves out. I like the Yankees' bullpen better than the Mets. And everything kind of played out except that the Yankees' bullpen didn't get it done last night. We lose in 10 innings. Mets over the Yankees by a tally of 4-3. to three. Next up, Rangers and Angels from Arlington. Boy, Texas continues to play great baseball. Might they steal the AL West from the Houston Astros? I took the Rangers last night on the money line against L.A. At minus 130, you bet 10, you win 17-69. And the Rangers build an early lead, and they cruise to a 6-3 victory over the Halos. We'll take the victory there. The third suggestion last night was a parlay of two teams that were big favorites, so that's why we bundled them. We had the Braves on the money line in game two against the Tigers and the Rays on the money line at the A's going into this game. Oakland had won seven in a row. Now, parlayed together, the Braves and the Rays 
winning at minus 104. You bet 10, you win 19, or I should say, yeah, 1969. The Braves pulled out a 6-5 win over the Tigers, and the Rays fell behind 3-1, but never fear. Tampa came back and won 6-3, so the parlay hits at minus 104. And the fourth suggestion from last night, it was Miami and Seattle playing out at Safeco Field. Two outstanding young pitchers on the mound. Yuri Perez, the rookie for the Marlins. Luis Castillo for the Mariners. I thought this would be a pitcher's duel. So I went under seven total runs between the two teams. The final score, Miami four, Seattle one for a total of five, which is under seven. So at minus 110, you put down 10, you win 1909. So we went three and one. Last night, made $16.47 on four $10 bets. So we're 7-5 and five for the week and really like what's happening in June as we hit the halfway mark. We are 26-14 and 14 this month for the year, 189, 155, and 3. So now, can we keep the good groove going? Let's try with four suggestions for tonight. I loved last night's card. This night's card, I'm not so happy about. This is a good night to fade me, I have a feeling. All right, let's start with the Cubs and the Pirates at Wrigley Field in Chicago. The Cubbies going for the three-game sweep of the Buckos. Let's start with this, a player prop. I'm going with Cubs outfielder Ian Happ over one and a half, hits, runs, and RBI against the Pirates, Johan Oviedo, and the rest of that Pirates staff. We get Happ at minus 105. You bet 10, you win 1952. Happ hit his first home run since May 5th earlier in this series. That's a good sign. And Happ has good numbers against Oviedo in his career. Four for 10 with a homer, three knocked in, plus a walk. So Happ over one and a half, combination of hits, runs, and RBI against the Pirates. Suggestion number two, once again, Cubs and Pirates at Wrigley Field. And a really low number for total runs in this game because Marcus Stroman is pitching for Chicago. He has been as dominant as anyone in the National League so far this year. And he's got a player option. He's been saying on social media, I want to stay in Chicago, but apparently the Cubs are not inquiring about keeping him so it maybe he's a trade piece at the deadline but the cubs are right now in position still to win the nl central so a very low run total for tonight six and a half with stroman and oviedo pitching let's go for it let's go over six and a half total runs let's hope the cubs score a majority of the runs because stroman probably isn't going to give up much over six and a half total runs at minus 120. We put down 10 to win 18.33. Suggestion number three on we going to Sizzler for this Thursday. Let's go out to Chavez Ravine, the Dodgers, taking on the White Sox. Total runs between the two teams set at nine. Grove going for the Dodgers against Dylan Cease. Come on, Dylan. I'm banking on you being good tonight. This is all about you shutting down the Dodgers. 
I'm going White Sox Dodgers under nine total runs at minus 120. Again, bet 10 to win 1833. And the fourth and final suggestion from the old AL Central. Everybody's alive except the Royals. It's the first of four games in the Twin Cities between the Detroit Tigers and the Minnesota Twins. Tigers have a tough one tonight. They're facing the old Vanderbilt pitcher, Sonny Gray, who's got a two-and-a-quarter ERA so far this year for Minnesota. But Gray oftentimes this year, as a guy in his 30s, does not pitch very long in games. So, the player prop for Sonny Gray tonight is 17-and-a-half outs. So, if he goes six innings, we lose. Anything less... We win. So let's go. Sonny Gray under 17 and a half outs against Detroit at minus 115. You bet 10, you win 18.69. All right, so Ian Happ over one and a half hits, runs, and RBI at minus 105. Cubs and Pirates over six and a half total runs at minus 120. White Sox Dodgers under nine total runs at minus 120. And twin starter Sonny Gray under 17 and a half outs against Detroit at minus 115. We'll take a break. More sports speed in a moment on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. 